Good morning, friends. Good to see you. Just in case you're wondering, uh, my name is Brent Burtzel. I'm the adult ministries pastor. Some of you might be new to the church and you haven't seen me up here in this particular capacity. I do want you to know I was on the schedule because Pastor Roger was scheduled to be in Roanoke, Virginia at a family life conference. But on Tuesday, he called them and said he was just too sick. And so he is at home. Very unusual place for Roger to be on Sunday morning. But um, he is continually having this bronchial uh, asthma, I guess they're calling it, and he can't breathe. And it's hard to preach when you can't breathe. So uh, pray for him, and we'll trust that uh, God will restore him to health, and he'll be back here next Sunday. Today I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles and also pull that little sheet out of your outlook for the sermon notes. We're going to talk about an interesting topic this morning. We're going to talk about fear. And um, you may not really want to talk about it, but we're going to do it anyways. And uh, a lot of us deal with fear and we see it in a negative way. Uh, definition that I found in the dictionary was that fear is a distressing, negative sensation induced by a threat. I see something out there and I don't like what I see and one of the first responses I get is fear. And uh, you've been taught in your psychology classes at school that you have two responses. You either fight or you flee like crazy. And so fear is one of those kind of automatic emotions that sometimes we don't really like to think about very much. Uh, I have a couple of fears. I'll give you an example of a fear. Uh, I'm afraid that if I don't lose some weight that I won't fit into my swimming suit this summer. Uh, I can tell you that, and some of you laugh because it's sort of like that is a funny thought of you in a swimsuit. And I don't go there. I haven't been to the beach for a long time. I got a wife. I don't need any other girls looking at me, so I just stay out of my swimsuits. But that's one of my fears. Got to lose some weight, but I don't do much about it. I still eat coffee and donuts more than I should, and that's a fear, but I, I put it in the back compartment. But let me get vulnerable with you. I do have a fear. I don't like to talk about it. Whenever I do think about it, it makes me really afraid. I'm 57 years of age. Uh, I plan on being a healthy guy living until 85. That's what the actuarial tables say that I should do. But I also had a dad who, at age 70, started to lose his mind with Alzheimer's. It was a terrible thing. You lose your identity. You don't know who you are. And I don't know why it is it's so nasty that the people who are closest to you, you seem to lose, forget the soonest. I remember one day when my dad was in the house and we knew that he was struggling with cognition and figuring things out, but we still had a lot of fun. And, but he said to me once, who's that lady over there? And my dad was kind of a joker, and so I, I thought he was just pulling my leg. And then I, you know, he said, no, who is that? And I looked and I said, well, that's your wife of 48 years. Didn't know who she was. And if I have a fear, I fear that I'm going to lose my mind. 
And that's a terrible thing. I've witnessed it once, and I've already told my kids, if I do forget you, please know that I love you. But I don't know what the future will hold for me. Now, talk about a sobering thing. There's the pastor already crying, talking about Alzheimer's. But my friends, do you have any fears? Do you have a grandpa that died of cancer way too soon? Do you have people that you are in your circle and you see their hardship and you're kind of afraid that that same thing might happen to you someday? We have fears. And so today I want to talk about fear. But I also want to talk about fear in a positive way. Because fear, much like pain, if we take it seriously, we can actually avoid some very unpleasant things. You know, if my little grandson learns fear of stairways, he may not go tumbling down. And so that's a good fear. I want him to develop that fear. Um, I remember the boy down the street, the first kid in the block that kind of got his driver's license. And he was kind of a flippant kid. And his mother was scared to death about him driving. And one of the first <laughs> days he drove, he drove the car out of the garage and he ripped the fender off of the front end of the car. And I remember Robin saying so well, you know, that's so small, but I wanted to put the fear of the Lord in him. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is what does it mean to fear the Lord? We're instructed all throughout Scripture to fear the Lord. I want you to look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It's going to come up here on the screen in just a minute, but it's always good to look at it right here in your Bible as well. I'm still a person of the 20, 20th century, and I love paper and I love ink. Uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Another translation that I really like puts it kind of another way. It says, the first principle of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Knowledge of the Holy is understanding. Now we have it up here on the screen, and this is a beautiful example of what we call synonymous parallelism. It's a word that we use to try to explain how Hebrew poetry is written. We often have two lines in a couplet, and the first line is kind of like the major thought, and line two then tells us a little bit more about line one. And in this case, we call it synonymous because line two basically repeats line one, but uses different terms to help expand our understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. So the two major comparisons are wisdom is very much an overlap with understanding, and fear of the Lord is an overlap with knowledge of the holy. So when the scripture says some 160 times throughout the scriptures, it is to good to fear the Lord your God, what does that mean? Well, it probably has a great breadth of meaning, but today we're going to talk about knowledge of the holy. What does it mean to know the Lord your God? 
In good educational fashion, I'm going to try to use three different lenses to look at this knowledge of God. First of all, I'm going to talk about my head or your head. Educators call it cognition. It's how we take in information, we process it, we store it away in our brains. That's the first part. The second part is called the affective, my heart. This is where I put values on what's most important, what's not so important. A lot of my decisions are based on what do I value the most. And then finally, we look at our hands. This is the behavioral. This is what's observable. This is the outcome. What do I really believe and what do I really value comes out in my actions. And so today, as we talk about what does it mean to fear the Lord, we'll look at these three aspects. Number one, my head. My perception of God. When I think of God, how do I view Him? What is... What are the pictures that come into my mind? What are the descriptions that I have of God? We sometimes call this my world view. This idea of what is really real. If you put away everything else that's chaff, what remains as really real? This is my cognitive understanding of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 17, reads like this. Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all of his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. My word for God is he is incomprehensible. God cannot be figured out. You can't study him long enough and say, you know what? I finally figured out what makes God tick. <laughs> He's so much beyond you and me. And so as I begin to try to understand God, and as I try to share that with you, I want you to have a balanced view of God. And in theology, we use two terms. One of them is the term transcendence, that God is beyond everything that we see here. He is surpassing all limits. God is omni this and omni that. We know these attributes of God, but sometimes we kind of nod our head and say, yeah, we know. And then on the other side, we use this word Imminence. God is close by. He is near. We can have this relationship with Him. And one of the things that I want to do in my work as pastor of adult ministries is saying, folks, it's both and. It's this nice hug, Abba Father. Never forget that because God wants you to have the same relationship with Him that you have with your earthly father, assuming that it's a good warm, intimate relationship. But also, remember that that same God that wants to give you a hug is the God of the universe, the creator of everything that we see. Now, I do not have a very scientific mind. Uh, some of you are engineers. You're way smarter than me. You know science inside and out. And I just kind of dabble on the outskirts. I like to read articles that figure out what scientists are doing right now. And over in Switzerland, in France, 
they have this little circle, 27 kilometers and around, and they bombard particles to try to see how many things they can blow up and have all of these particles, and they're looking for this thing called Higgs boson, or is it Biggs Hosen? No, <laughs> it was the first one. They figure out if they can find that particle, they can figure out what gives mass to the universe. I say, I go to Genesis 1-1. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where mass comes from. But they're looking for it. And I hope they keep on finding some more particles. But then there are other scientists that shoot for the stars, the Hubble telescope. But you know, there's a thing that's been out there for 34 years called Voyager 1. I've been reading about it. I don't have this on the tip of my tongue. But Voyager 1 got launched in 1977. It's been flying like crazy for 34 years. Right now, it's 11 billion miles away from Earth. It's gone so far that it no longer has any pull from the sun. It's beyond the reach of our solar system. They call it cosmic purgatory out there. It's kind of floating out there, or not floating, it's speeding along somewhere between solar systems. Now, for those of you who are scientific, that like to crunch numbers, here's a few numbers. We're going to do a problem-solving exercise. It's 11 billion miles away. It's currently traveling 38,000 miles an hour. Its signal to come back here to Earth takes 16 and a half hours traveling at the speed of light. Now, if it continues to travel at that speed, 38,000 miles an hour, and it's going this direction, how long is it going to take to get to the next star? The very next star after our sun, how long is it going to take? Well, you say, Brent, give us some more data. Okay, the next star is called Proxima Centauri, and it's 4.24 light years away. So get out your little calculator. Oh, by the way, a light year is 5.8 trillion miles. It'll take Voyager 1 73,600 years to get to the next star. <laughs> Friends, that is immense. When I just think of that one little example of the immensity of our universe, I think of Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, where the psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? That explains the transcendent side of God saying, he is so much bigger than you and I can ever imagine. Let's make sure that when we have this perception of God, we have this picture of immensity. I've been trying to think of some words, majesty, magnificence, preeminence, grandeur, immensity, resplendence. But these words all pale in insignificance to this great God who created the universe. That's part of my perception of God. He is incomprehensible, and I remain humbly inquisitive. I still want to study him but I do it very humbly because I realize how big he is and how little I am. I go to the next part and I say, 
with my heart, how do I understand God? What's involved with this fear of the Lord? There I turn right away to this aspect of worship. Worship is something where I attribute great worth to the object of my devotion. And so there I decide, here's what's most important in my life. And then those things that aren't so important, I put as leftovers. I've sometimes heard people talk about their spouse. I worship my wife. Wow, <laughs> that's really amazing. I think she's really nice, but yeah, Sandy's here somewhere. I know she doesn't worship me, and I don't worship her either. We're, we're kind of on this level plane. But I do worship God. God is worthy of my worship. He is awesomely holy. And when I have in my head how awesome He is, then in my heart I say, I want to bow before you in worship. I want to say, I'm devoted to you. Whatever you want, that's what I want. I have a couple of stories, a couple of passages that come to my mind when I think about worship. The first one I think is in the text of the notes. Revelation verse 15, Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Worship is a natural part of this perception of God as awesomely holy. One of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Job. Actually, I have 66 favorite books, but I'd like for you to turn back in your Bibles to Job chapter 38. Job is one of those books that I will admit is a hard book to get through. And maybe some of you recognize how difficult it is. I had someone come up to me just after the first service and said, I've been reading Job in my chronological Bible, and I have to admit that I just kind of skipped through parts of it. Job is written in a very powerful pattern, and that is there's a give and take between people as they try to figure out the big things of God. You know the story of Job. Chapters 1 and 2 is kind of cool. You actually study that in Sunday school. Job is the wealthiest guy around. God decides... Well, Satan asks for permission to test Job and takes away everything. And then we see Job as destitute. His friends come to help him, and then they really mess up, and after seven days of silence, they start talking. Nah, 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 nah. Job, you obviously really messed up. Just confess your sins to God, and he'll take care of things. Job says, I resent that. I am a righteous person. There's nothing that I have to confess. And they go back and forth like that from chapter 3 to chapter 37. And quite honestly, you have to be a fairly devoted Bible scholar to read through all of that back and forth. But friends, don't give up. Make sure you get to chapter 38. And that's where I want you to turn. Because after all of that discussion where God is trying to listen to these people talk back and forth, and them trying to figure out Job's dilemma, then we find in chapter 38 these verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, 
Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid earth's foundation? And I'm imagining Job said, uh, I wasn't there. Uh, I wasn't even thought of. This is what we call rhetorical questions. God asks the questions, but he really doesn't expect Job to have an answer because the answer is always, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. All the way through chapter 38 and 39, God keeps peppering with him with questions about the greatness of his creation. And Job has to continually be thinking, I don't know the answer to that one. I don't know the answer to that one. So it's kind of showing the chasm between the greatness of God and kind of the puniness of our human knowledge. I want you to turn to chapter 40 as well. Turn a couple of pages to chapter 40. It's almost exactly the same kind of dialogue back and forth. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Folks, I have a new posture for worship. When we come in, we bow our heads. Why don't we put our hands over our mouth and say, God, <laughs> I have nothing to say. You are the one who is the source of all truth. You are the one who is the source of all mercy and grace. And I am here only to receive. That's the view of a person that has a transcendent view of God. Now, occasionally, we need to come to the other side and say, God, please tell me again that you love me. Please tell me that you still know my circumstances. And he does. And Jesus Christ is evidence of how much God loves us and wants to be in a relationship to us. But if we hang out here all of the time, sometimes we forget just how great God is. Sometimes we think that we're kind of eye to eye with God. You know, Abba, Father, hey, I prayed to you last week and I haven't heard anything. What's going on here, God? I thought we had an understanding. I'm your child and you're my papa. Come on. You know, that eye-to-eye -eye contact, it's okay with human relationships, but occasionally we need to make sure that we don't treat God as though he is our sugar daddy and he just does whatever we ask him to do. I have four lovely kids. They're all young adults. I love them a lot. I'm going to tell you about Amy. She's daughter number two. Lives up in Big Lake. Husband's a pastor. Beautiful couple. And uh, they gave us our first grandson uh, just about a year ago. And they're expecting their second. And we love that immensely. But a few years ago, they moved to this area with no kids and two cats. And uh, the cats were welcome into our house because we knew it was going to be temporary. But uh, during that time... They chewed up a few senior pictures, and they did a number of things of destruction. And we were really happy to see the cats go when Amy and Dan moved to an apartment. 
But after they got to the apartment, they kind of learned that either they didn't hear that part of the lease or they changed the rules on them, but they were told, you can't have the cats. So they called us and said, hey, Mom and Dad, do you want our cats? And Sandy and I looked at each other, then we said to the phone, no, we don't want your cats. And uh, that, that really hurt Amy. And so I had to explain a few things to Amy. Those cats don't have any of my DNA. I have no sense of loyalty to those cats. And so I'm not going to take them into my house. And so Amy respectfully heard that word no. But as she thought about it, and actually as they were driving to Chicago to take the cats back where they came from, some alley in North Chicago, <clears throat> to the house, the house where the cats came from, Amy got increasingly angry. And so for really one of the first times in her life, she called me up to tell me off. And she really kind of let me have it. And I'm sitting there looking at the phone saying, wow, this is really strong. And then I said to Amy, you need to know why we said no. And if you didn't hear me the first time, we really, we hate your cats and we don't want them in our house. That was the end of the conversation. Now, if this audio ever gets out to a big lake, I'm going to be in a heap of trouble because we've really let this one slide by. But I want you to get my point that sometimes here in this Papa God, lovey-dovey, huggy kind of relationship, we think we can just talk to God like we talk to our old man. Don't. Don't trivialize God. When you think about God, have the sense of a hug and have a sense of getting down on your knee. Not one knee, both knees. And as Ezekiel encountered the glory of the Lord, he said, I fell on my face. That is what it looks like to understand the fear of the Lord. That is a transcendent God. And don't ever think that somehow you can push him around or manipulate him or think that somehow he owes you something. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, and he writes these words, or he speaks these words. Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Friends, when my mind begins to comprehend the awesome, incredible, incomprehensible God, as my heart bows in worship before Him who is awesomely holy, then my behavior is going to be showing my knowledge and my values, my head and my heart. I'm going to do the things that God wants me to do. I have a, I talked about my dad. My dad was an excellent dad. He walked the walk. He really was 
a good man. One of the things that he was never afraid to do was to spank me. He didn't spank me often. But I had a very healthy fear that if I (laughs) dissed my dad, there would be repercussions. And when I was younger, that meant a paddle. And I had a healthy fear of my dad. My dad had a very interesting system. Maybe some of you have something similar. He never, ever spanked me out of anger. He didn't spank me that often. But he'd send me to my room so I could think about it. There, my friend, was a lot of fear of the Lord. Because I was thinking, I'm really going to pay for the consequences of my choices. Now, there are times when people are looking around saying, I'm not getting it. Why things aren't going very well in my life? And it's because you are choosing to live contrary to the commands and the wisdom of God. And so that's where we need to understand that there are those kinds of reciprocal relationship. God gives to us, and then God wants us to respond back with love and obedience. I'm going to end with what I call the biblical paradox. If I get my fear in the right place, by that I mean if I fear the Lord, then I will be fearless. Let me show you Psalm 112, verses 1, and then verse 7. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. That's what I've been talking about all the sermon. We understand who God is with our head, with our heart, and with our behavior. Now I go to verse 7, and there it says, He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. My friends, as you and I have this proper, healthy, balanced relationship with God that is sometimes called the fear of the Lord then when bad things enter our life, we will have no fear of them because we know that God is big and we know that God is powerful and we know that God is loving and we know that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So no matter what kind of bad news shows up on your front porch, you don't have to be afraid of that because you are a child of the Creator God. And he's going to be with you. One of the most fearful things I ever faced was my dad's illness. But I can give testimony to the fact that God never abandoned my dad. He never abandoned us as a family. It wasn't what we wanted. It wasn't the kind of close to a life that we had hoped for. But God never left us. And as God showed himself faithful in that, I've been able to follow through on many other aspects of our life and realize when bad things show up, God also shows up. And he's there to sustain us. He's there to carry us through those difficult times. So my prayer for you today is to understand what it means to fear the Lord so that you have fear of nothing else. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a God that shows grace and mercy. 
You are a God who has written upon the stars the majesty of your power. We worship you and we adore you. Help us what it means. Help us to know what it means day by day to fear you in a way that brings honor and glory to your name and helps us to walk in paths of righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.